Hello and welcome. My name is Tom. This is the Enthusiasm Project Season 3, Episode 5. And today I'm going to do something that we've never done before, which is very first Q&A episode. And I'm really excited. I can warn you in advance, this is probably going to be a bit of a longer episode. So if you... It's a good time to just settle in, I guess, and prepare for a longer episode. If you're like me and you tend to listen to podcasts while you like do chores and do work, this is a good time to like start cleaning the house or washing the car or whatever it is that you do while you listen to podcasts because I was so worried. <laughs> so I put out a call a couple days ago on Twitter, Instagram, and the YouTube community page for questions. And I was so worried that there were going to be no cues to A. And to my surprise and delight, there were tons. And so I have a lot to go through. I want to hit basically all of them. And if you know me and you kind of know the purpose of this podcast, sometimes I can be a bit wordy and I can go on some tangents. So if that happens, that happens. I mean, I've gone through and like glanced at the questions, but I haven't like formulated answers in advance because I sort of want it to be that stream of consciousness off the cuff thing. But I, I do before jumping in want to thank everybody for submitting their questions. We even got a few voice questions, which is awesome. I love hearing other voices on the show. But it really means a lot to me that people listen, that people respond, that people are excited about it. And it's been great through messages, through comments, through you know, live chat on some of the live streams I've been doing to get to know some of you who you who watch and listen a little better. And I'm really impressed by how creative and talented so many people are that choose to give their time to my stuff. And I, I'm genuinely grateful and excited to jump into questions. Uh, it still blew my mind that I could just randomly post something and people replied to it. Uh, so that is super, super exciting to me. I do want to start our first question with a voice. We'll just jump into it with a voice uh, question from Dorothy, who was basically the first person to respond. So I want to make sure, you know, she gets dibs <laughs> on her question. So this is a question from Dorothy, and it kind of relates to last week's episode, which is all about uh, my ethics statement and ethics on YouTube. Hey, Tom, thanks for all your great content that you give us. My name is Dorothy, and I was wondering, you were talking about in your ethics podcast about that you want to choose your own input, your own creation stuff. Um, I was wondering if you could give us an idea of um, do you have an editorial calendar or anything that um, keeps you organized while you pick your own um, content? Thank you for everything. Bye. Thanks so much, Dorothy. I really appreciate your message. And this does tie back to the ethics statement discussion from last week, where there is a whole part in the ethics statement that basically says no outside force can influence my decision of when to schedule a video. So even if there were a sponsored thing, they can't say like, you have to do it on this date, because that's when we're releasing a product or announcing something. It's whenever I choose to do that. And I love having that control, and I think that that's really important. But on that, how do I decide what to manage, I think is a is an interesting question. If you've watched any of the behind-the-scenes stuff that I've done, uh, you or even listened to previous episodes, you might know about my little notebook that I keep all my ideas in. 
And that is a way that I, you know, that keeps track of what I want to make next, which is just, it's essentially like, what am I in the mood for that I think will also be most relevant at that time? But you might also know that I, for the past year, have been scheduling out videos in advance. So I have typically three to four videos ahead, and I publish one per week. So it is kind of strange when I finish a video, and then I know if I just put it at the end of that you know, calendar, that cycle, it's really not going to go up for almost a month. And sometimes that can be sort of a bummer because I'm like so excited about this video or there's something really neat in it. And it's like, I look forward to sharing this with people in weeks. But I think that that is still an important strategy for maintaining my own sanity. And then what I do within that is, you know, there's sort of this this uh, backlog, I guess, of videos, three or four videos that are up and ready to go. And I know what's happening when I actually have like a big paper desk calendar because it just works with my brain and I have it on there like what video is releasing on different dates but if you actually were to look at that calendar you would notice sometimes it's scratched out because I move the videos around a lot so for example if I you know if I made a video about I don't know the Canon EOS R my camera for example and I schedule that to post in three weeks and then suddenly Canon announces new cameras, I'll know that, well, my camera video might be more relevant now because Canon cameras are in discussion. So I'll bump that one up a little bit. Or if I just kind of, it's sort of like just a gut feeling, I guess. If I just feel like something has become more relevant, I might switch the order around a little bit. So sometimes the video that I post is the most recent one that I've made and sometimes it's not and I think if someone wanted to be a super sleuth they could go through and look at the episode number in the description of a video and then compare that to the posted date and you would see the order because those they don't go in order so it might be like episode 182 and then the next week is episode 189 but, you know, just because things get a little weird sometimes. So it's almost like a production date and an air date or production numbering and air run numbering. And it's it's not always the same. Uh, and that's that has worked out fine for me. I don't think there's any consequence to that. It's nice to be able to sort of pick things um, based on what I think is going to be most relevant. I do try to alternate since I... You know, I have a lot of audio-related videos and a lot of video-related videos, but if you're dealing in the world of video production, audio and video go together really importantly. So I I kind of like try to bounce back and forth where one week I'll do a more audio-related video and the next week I'll do something that's more video-specific and just sort of alternate between those. It's not a hard and fast rule that I always stick to, but that's what I've been doing lately. And I think that that does a good job if somebody, you know, finds a Rodecaster video and subscribes because of that the next video they see might be about camera stuff, but then the one after that might be about microphones. And it tells them maybe not every single video that pops up on the channel is going to be like the one that you want to watch if you're super into like just roadcaster stuff. But it also says, hey, no, don't worry. There's still the stuff that you did subscribe for is going to be here. So I kind of choose how to bounce them back and forth just sort of based on my gut instinct. The only downside to that is sometimes I'll make a video And for whatever reason, it's almost like it's so evergreen that I can just keep bumping it back as more timely stuff gets made. And sometimes I'll have videos that end up getting pushed back like a month and a half or two months. One of them right now, oh gosh, I don't even know when this video is going to come up. Probably not for another two weeks, but 
It's a video I made now almost a month ago about recording audio outdoors. And it's this super fun video where like Heather helped me. And it was, I mean, the video is really fun because it's about recording audio outside. But the fun part is, you know, Heather helped me and it was on this super hot day. It was like 108 degrees outside. And so the heat combined with the subject matter, just, I don't know, something about the video is just really funny to me. And it just keeps getting pushed back because there's just other videos that I think are more relevant. So sometimes that can almost feel frustrating. And then you feel like, well, I'll just publish it. You know, I'll just do two or three videos this week to get them out there. But long story, extra long, the importance of having that backlog of videos is crucial, especially, you know, like now is kind of the end of summer-ish and going into the start of a new school year. For me, I know that that it's important to stay sane and to make sure I can keep my YouTube and podcast podcast content consistent while also being able to focus on my day job. And I guess sometimes the price you pay is that the video doesn't go up as soon as you want it to. But podcasts are kind of different. They're a little bit more immediate for the most part. This podcast that was published on Monday, the 20, what, the 27th, I'm recording on the afternoon of the 26th. So this will be up in just a few hours after I'm done recording. So that kind of like eases my urge to have things more immediate. So thanks again, Dorothy. That was, uh, well, we spent a long time on one question, but that's okay. It's great questions. We're going to jump over to Instagram now. And uh, M. Sladek Photo, which is Michael. I don't know if I pronounced the last name correctly. Uh, he said, what has been your biggest investment or your best investment for your YouTube channel? Well, if you want to know like the thing that I use the most, I could say something like my camera or my computer because when it comes to making YouTube videos, you know, kind of need <laughs> need to edit on the computer and having a nice new powerful computer really makes a difference there and my camera I love using and looks great and delivers great content, but really if you want to talk about investment for the channel, probably the Rodecaster Pro because that has been at least in 2020, the thing that has helped the channel to grow the most and to build a community and to help me understand the community of people that are coming to the channel, which are not only just interested in, in like podcasting and audio, but who are actively creating their own stuff. And whether or not they get the roadcaster specifically, they're, you know, they're looking for how to do those things and they have questions about it. And it's, it's very active and hands-on and you know, people are in the midst of making their own thing. And, and it's also made it easier for people to approach me about being part of their podcasts or, you know, live streaming or whatever. So the Roadcaster has probably been the best investment, which is great because even though it's, you know, it's pricey, it's 600 bucks, but for what it does, I think it's worth it. And for what it's brought to me and my channel, that is worth it. And if I look at the revenue from the video, like the main review video for the Roadcaster, it has earned so far, I mean, it took about a year or even more, but it's earned 550-ish dollars. So it has essentially paid for itself, uh, which is really cool when you look at it that way, I guess. So thanks, Michael. I appreciate your question so much. Let's jump now to the YouTube community page. Um, we're going to go to JC Craft Mage, <laughs> for a podcast, when is it deemed worth it to go from a USB mic to a full XLR setup? Are the differences even worth it if you're just talking? And what are the differences in sound? That is a great question. 
especially for anybody who wants to start podcasting and is on a more limited budget. So in terms of the difference between sound, I'm sure like an audio pro can go into all the nuances. I don't really notice a difference. A great XLR mic is going to sound great and a great USB mic is going to sound great. I think it might be easier to get a better sound out of a USB mic because they're generally made to plug and be plug and play with your computer, whether it's something like the Blue Yeti or like the Rode NT USB and, and all those kind of mics. You plug them in, they're designed to just click in and then they know you're going to use it with streaming software or podcasting software and they tend to sound really good. I have a Yeti that I've had for a few years, you know, and those mics are about $100 and they sound so good and they're so versatile. I just don't use it because I use the Rodecaster now. And if I want to do multiple inputs and things, the Yeti, it just isn't conducive to that. But I have used it many times. I do use it a lot on like all of my Zoom calls and my Zoom classes. And I used to use it a whole lot in my videos for voiceovers. So anyway, uh, you can get great results with a USB mic. I think that the time you would want to go to a full XLR setup would be when you do want to have more than one microphone or more than one input. Because if you're trying to do multiple USB mics on one computer, things get weird really quickly. Whereas if you have a mixer of some kind that takes XLR inputs, you can easily have you know four or more microphones plugged in and they can sound pretty good. Depending on the mic, you might need some kind of other amplifier, which then, of course, increase the costs. But that would be my answer is when you want more than one microphone, that's when you want to go full XLR. If it's just one person, if it's just you talking and doing your podcast, there's nothing wrong with just sticking with that one USB mic. That's going to probably be the cheapest route that's going to give you the best results. And then you're just recording into something like GarageBand or Audacity or Audition or whatever software of choice you choose. So Thanks so much, JC Craftmage, for that question. That's a good one, especially for people who are being very budget conscious. Um, let's hop over to Twitter, where at um, just behaves b h a v s um, asked an audio question. <laughs> Actually, said uh, so many questions. Am I allowed an audio question? Of course, you're allowed an audio question. Uh, so here we go. I know you tried out the Rode interview kit. Is that still what you'd recommend for interviews or are there better options? I don't want to spend a crazy amount. Um, the interview kit is the, I forget the exact number. It's like the Rode SC6. It's two lavalier microphones that plug into an adapter that then plug into your phone and you can use um, you can use an app on your phone to record two different people. I did a whole video about it. It is a really good little interview piece of kit that I really like. And I actually got it for free, um, not this year, but last year I entered Rhodes podcast contest that they do. And I totally did not win, just like I didn't win this year. But last year they gave away those kits to like the first 300 people who entered. So they just, I got it for free, which was super worth it because I think it's about a $200 kit normally because it does come with two microphones and the adapter. And I really do like it. it. The sound quality is awesome. I have a whole video on my channel where I use it and test it out. It works great. Um, I I do recommend it. It's a little pricey at $200 is my only hesitation. But if you're doing an interview and you're going to be close to the person because you are limited by the microphone cable lengths. So 
it works great in cars. It works great if you're sitting, you know, side by side or at a table. Uh, beyond that, <laughs> it might be a little bit tricky. So if you're doing interviews where you're sitting next to someone, it does work really well. And it's just going to give you good results and it's, it is worth the investment. If you're not doing that, then it can be a little trickier. Um, but even just having somebody record into their phone, like two separate phones, then you combine those audio tracks, that works really well. Uh, or the same thing if you're not in the same location, having two different people record like via USB mics into their computers can work really well. Also, I mean, depending on your budget, you could get something like a Zoom H5, which does have two XLR ports on the bottom. And then you can use XLR mics. And then, you know, then you're getting into building a more traditional setup with a, a recorder or a mixer and then cables and microphones and things kind of get out of hand. So the beauty of that little road kit is it does keep things very simple. And as long as you're going to be in close proximity with the person you're talking to, it really, really does work really, really well. Um, jumping back over to Instagram, here is Gary Cantrell. And he asks, how do you manage your time when it comes to making videos, do you set a specific time limit to work? How strict or how lax are you with the time you give yourself to make videos? That is a great question. The reason that I started my whole thing of backlogging videos was so I didn't have to have the pressure of, oh my God, like I have to do a video now on top of work, on top of everything else that's happening and to kind of give me a little bit of breathing room. But in order to keep that up, I do still need to produce at least one new thing per week one new video per week. And I'm, you know, during summer break, like right now, it's a little easier. I've actually been trying to make sure I don't record videos on the weekends and just literally take Saturday and Sunday to do like basically this podcast is the only thing I do on the weekends. Otherwise, I actually try to like not do any of this stuff and just take a break. Even if I want to, I know that it's better to just step back, get a fresh perspective, take a break and then jump back into it like on Monday feeling really excited. But my goal is by the end of the day on Wednesday at the latest to have a new video done. So my typical schedule throughout the summer has been to plan and maybe start filming a video on Monday, film on Tuesday, film and edit on Tuesday, maybe finish editing on Wednesday. That's kind of been the, the plan there. And I could really, and I've done it many times, I could do that all in one day. But I found that if I'm able to be patient and pace myself and come back to it the next day, even though it's really tempting to just want to finish something, the end result ends up being better. Because even when you feel like this video is great and I could post it right now or I could work for another hour and finish it, leaving and coming back a day later gives you a totally different perspective and you don't feel quite as exhausted or you don't feel that pressure to just finish right now. And I have found myself putting in, you know, a little more touches of polish here or there and editing in a few different ways and finding stuff that it turns out I can cut out or I can change around after I thought that maybe I didn't even have to do that. And the videos have just gotten better when I give myself more, even if it's not more time, but time spread out over a longer period, the videos have gotten better. That's going to be tougher to do once my work kicks back in. And usually during the school year, I typically do like film and edit on Saturday and Sunday. Um, just on the weekends, just to because that's kind of what I have to do with with work and a, a regular day job. I'm not super strict. I don't have like, you know, I will only give myself four hours to edit or four hours to film or something like that. But I do want to make sure 
I do want to make sure that I am not spending too, too much time because it is very easy to just lock myself away and work on a video for the whole day into the night and be done. But I want to make sure for my own, you know, well-being that I take time to go spend time with Heather and our dogs and those kinds of things where down the line, I won't want to think, oh, you could have been enjoying all this great quality time, but instead you were staring at a computer screen. So trying to find that balance is is important, but I don't have any specific hard deadlines um, that I give myself. So thanks again for that question. Let's see here. I have all these windows open and I'm like sort of bouncing between them. Uh, jumping back to YouTube. Oh, look, speaking of, here's one from Heather Just Create. That's my wife. What's your favorite thing that you've created that isn't a video? Also, you're hot. Actually, it's really cold in this room. I have a blanket around me, so I'm I'm very chilly, if anything. What is my favorite thing that I've created that isn't a video? Um, would just saying my YouTube channel be a cop-out because I'm proud of the thing as a whole? Uh, if not that, then I would definitely, like, say the, you know, the digital media program that I teach is something I'm super proud of, especially because that was literally, I, I worked at a, at a school prior uh, I started teaching digital media in 2012 and I worked at that school doing media for four years and I kind of rebuilt a program that I was part of. So it was something that already existed. I stepped in and especially the, the video part of it that I taught, we rebuilt it from the ground up, made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot of things. And then a different school district who didn't have any media programs at all wanted me to help them develop one. So I spent a lot of time helping them develop it. And then at the end of that, they were essentially like, well, do you just want to be the person to to teach it? And the cool part was the proof of concept was already there in my old school, old school. And they basically said, hey, you come here. We don't know what you're doing. So we just trust you to do it. And I had way more creative freedom than you would probably ever imagine having in public education to just sort of start something from the ground up that was going to be good for students. And now that we're going into our fifth year of that program, you know, the senior class that graduated this year, they started as freshmen. So the first full group went through and it was re it's been so rewarding to see this go from an idea in my head to something I'm trying to get kids excited about that have no idea what it is to something that has become kind of like a pillar of our school community and even our like local community just in the city and in the school district and stuff and something where you know students use it as a part of their identity so even on their social media they identify the program's called impact so they identify themselves as like an impact person or an impact kid or whatever and that is is wild to me to just come up with with an idea and have it become an important part of somebody's identity and their experience and something that they'll commit to for a number of years of their time and energy and that it seems to be valued by the school and the community. So I would say the impact pathway is my favorite thing I've created that isn't a video. So thanks, my wife, for that question on YouTube. Okay, heading back over to Instagram. This is from Zeriums. And he says, how can I get my live stream to look like yours? I will be doing a like how I live stream video once I'm pretty much ready to do it. But I 
just want to make sure I have a workflow down that I'm happy with. Heather and I live stream on her channel every Thursday night. We have a like live stream podcast that we do called The Couples Table. It has nothing to do with photo and video or anything like that. It's just sort of us as a newly married couple talking about issues and things and, and sharing conversations. And that's really, really fun. So we do a live stream there. And that's also up on all the podcast platforms as well as an audio podcast. And then I've been doing a few live streams on my channel lately. And I, I kind of want to get in the habit of doing one or two a month. I don't want to overdo it, but it is really fun. And there's been an awesome group of people every time where like literally the streams could just go for hours and hours on end. Um, and they have been looking pretty good. This The basic setup that I've been using is my Canon EOS R as the camera which fortunately, even though it's not plugged into the wall, has great battery life and easily lasts throughout a live stream. And it has great autofocus too, so that's very helpful. I run that into the Elgato Cam Link, so that's the adapter that lets me capture the signal. And then I use the Rodecaster for audio, and that's plugged into the computer. And then I've been using StreamYard to actually do the podcast. I used to use OBS, which is definitely more powerful but it's also much quirkier, and it is, it is free. Um, but StreamYard is just so easy, and it's like online-based, and you just open it up, you log in, you can just select your video source, boom, cam link. You select your audio source, boom, Rodecaster, and you're done. It also makes it super easy to, like, you click on somebody's comment, and it puts their comment up on screen, so it's not just me reading it, but people can actually see it with their profile picture and the whole thing, and that's really nice. You can put graphics up, you can put little like scrolling tickers on the bottom. It makes it really, really cool and easy to do live streams. Plus, I haven't done this yet, but you can bring in other people really easily. Almost like Zoom, you can give them a link to your your stream, your screen, and they can join and then you can click and bring in another person and have a live conversation with somebody else on your stream. So I've been using StreamYard. The only downside to StreamYard is that it currently only works at 720, not even 1080. But it still looks pretty good, and I know they're working towards releasing a 1080 version or a 1080 update. It is not free. Heather has an account, and so I do all my streams um, through her account. I hope that's not going to get me in trouble for saying that. <laughs> um, so thanks. So that's basically how I do it. Uh, that's essential. Oh, and then a new thing I've been doing, which have all have been gear of the week mentions in the past, but my Edelkrone slider, I also got the panning head the head one that goes on it and so I've been setting the camera to very slowly just slide back and forth but the camera's kind of panning to keep it's usually me and Heather on the live streams to keep us centered in the middle and it just adds a little bit of dynamic movement that people have said they like I don't think it's too distracting I don't think anyone's getting motion sick but it's neat to have a live stream where it's just us there's no camera operator but there's still some nice looking camera movement to just make things pretty interesting. So that's essentially what I've been doing. I will do a video rundown of that. Maybe that'll even be the video I make this week because I'm a little um, currently torn on, on which videos to make. So thanks so much for that question. Let's jump back over to Twitter here. Um, Ba-boom. So this is Joseph Keller at QJO98 asks, uh, helping to start an interactive media program for high school. Awesome. Curriculum revolves around podcast, video, and live production. Any suggestions on funding outside of the scope of school budget? Also, places to procure 
used equipment for an area that is very rural without local professionals slash companies. I can help. Um, I have a few bits of input on that. So first, congrats on your um, new undertaking here. The, the thing is, my previous high school program that I taught of, part of what we did because it was recognized as one of the top programs in the state of California, and I don't just say that as a humble brag, but I say that because part of our responsibility with that title was to help um, to help start and to help develop new programs with other schools and like outreach and development and all that kind of thing. And one thing I noticed was there is no one way to do it. So much of it comes down to the teacher. I can give you the blueprints for my program or, or any other program, but it's going to come down to your skill set, your passions. And the mistake that so many schools would make is they would they would say, okay, we're going to start a media program and you know, what equipment do we need? What does the studio need to look like? What should the classes be? What's the, all the stuff, the assignments and, and everything? And then I'd ask, oh, who's going to teach it? And they'd be like, oh, we got like this, this history teacher who, who likes cameras or whatever. I think I can pull our ASB person into it. And right away, it's like the program's not going to take off. You can't, that's not how you do it. It's, it's all about finding a person who you could literally give no equipment to, which would suck, but they would still make it work. Like they would find a way, okay, we're using phones only, or, you know, we have two kind of old cameras and we're going to make it work with those. Like somebody who's going to be innovative and then build the program over time and understanding that it does take a number of years to really build up a program like that. But uh, for funding, I don't know which state you're in. I'm in California. School budget covers literally zero of my program. Most of our funding comes from the uh, it's called the CTIG, which is the Career Technical Education Incentive Grant. So as the state of California has set aside funding specifically for career technical education. So if you have a teacher who has a CTE credential and the classes they're teaching are CTE classes, it sort of unlocks this funding. Um, every district gets a different allotment of the funding depending on what they applied for and what they were approved for. And then each school district is in charge of determining how they want to distribute that to different programs throughout their their district. So if you're in California, you're probably working within a district that has some CT incentive grant funding. If not, your state probably has something. Um, it might be called something different. But the place to go is to whoever is in charge of like career programs or special programs, maybe at your school site, but even probably at like your district office and see what funding is open and and they should be able to tell you okay we have this grant we have this thing here um you know these are the requirements of what you have to do to get those of course on your own as a teacher you can you can do grant writing and you can find there's just that's just like a bunch of google searches essentially um maybe even local sponsors what my students and i do a lot of is if we do work almost like client work for people they can't pay the students directly because it's against the law it's like child labor and all these things but they can make donations to the program. And so they make a donation to the program. And then that's kind of our way of helping to supplement some of the funding on our own. So as the program, as your program grows, you can start, you know, instead of doing a car wash where you waste your whole Saturday to earn like $80 and it's miserable, you know, do, do some live event coverage, do some corporate promotional pieces, some videos and things like that. And, you know, charge people $500 or $1,000 and they'll pay it because it's still a good value. They're supporting a school and it's probably still 
um, more affordable for them than hiring a pro team, which I don't want to undercut professionals, but it probably is more affordable for a small business to do that. And then you can start sustaining yourself a little bit. And then, you know, just kind of keeping your eye out, even though you might be in an area that doesn't have a ton of professional things, probably within, you know, within a couple hours drive, there's probably some kind of studio, some kind of radio station, some kind of something that might be getting rid of old equipment. I've had, you know, I started um, with one of the local TV stations here, getting rid of a bunch of old gear. And they invited me to just come over and like essentially take what I wanted, which was like a bunch of really old, super dangerous lights because they got so hot, but we had no studio lights. And so that was kind of how we started with lighting. And, you know, everything was like super, I don't even know how old, decades old, but it worked and it, it got the job done and it was a great way to get started. And that was just a lot of like phone calls and emails to people. Uh, you do have to be super proactive. It does take a lot of time on nights and weekends, but just reaching out anywhere and everywhere, not being afraid to, once you you feel that your students and you are at a certain level in terms of competence, not being able to, not being afraid to charge for those services to the community, try to avoid having your students get used to the idea of working for experience because sometimes, especially at high school, that is important, but a lot of times that's just code for people wanting to not pay what they should be paying and make, you know, they're, sure, they're not going to pay $10,000 for a project, but you can get $500 or $1,000, which can go a really long ways. Um, and then look into other, you know, festivals and things like that that have prizes. It's tricky and it's all baby steps. Um, the first place to start would be with your school site or your district, though, to see what kind of, whether you're visual art or a career tech program, what kind of funding is already in place that's not your school site budget. <laughs> I feel like that got really technical at the end there, but thank you so much for that question. I'm going to stick with Twitter real quick. Um, Blue Nose at MULV247 asks, what laptop do you use? What are the basic specs, chipset, hard drive size, how much memory? Cheers. Um, and then he also said that he found my video on my MacBook. Uh, so yeah, if you want to know what computer I use, this is this is a great question because so often people think they have to get a new computer every year because they see all the YouTubers getting new ones every year and then they think they need the best, best, best. If you're somebody who's going to be editing insanely huge 4K, 6K, 8K files or whatever, sure, invest in the best. If you're somebody who makes an absolute living off your computer, maybe it's worth to invest in the best. I would argue that I make a living off my computer and up until last fall, I used a seven-year-old 13-inch MacBook to build everything for my school program and my YouTube channel and this podcast. So you don't always need the latest and greatest and that computer worked pretty much fine. It just started getting a little bit, little bit laggy there at the end and the small screen size was starting to get a little limited so I have a 16-inch MacBook Pro right now. I'm clicking on the About This Mac. It's the mid-level version. So it is a 2.3 gigahertz i9 processor. I've only got 16 gigs of RAM. I didn't upgrade the RAM. I would have liked to, but then you have to like special order it from Apple. And this was the one that was like available in the store, and I was impatient. It does have the separate graphics card with 4 gigs of RAM. And it has a 1 terabyte hard drive, which for me is great because I... I've been just editing off of the computer's hard drive. So importing footage, like a folder on the desktop, editing, and then moving the folder onto an external hard drive when I'm done. So nothing lives on the hard drive, even though the computer 
I've had it for seven months. I still have about 700 gigs free on the hard drive because I try to keep as little as possible in terms of video projects on the hard drive. And I have found personally when it comes to computers, a lot of people think they need more than they actually need. And in terms of value, getting the middle option is usually the best. The lower price one usually gets you in the door. I'm thinking of something like the MacBook Pro where Apple usually has low, medium, and high. The low ones, they're all great. But the middle one is going to give you the most features for the best value, like dollar per feature ratio. And I think that that's probably the smartest choice almost in all cases. Additionally, if you're up for it and you're looking for an Apple specifically, getting an Apple refurbished computer can save you hundreds of dollars. If you ever listen to or uh, watch the Everyday Dad, he did a whole thing where he just got a 16-inch refurbished MacBook. He ended up saving like four or $500 on it. So don't don't get random refurbished ones. Get one directly from Apple online. But you can definitely save a lot of money that way. So that is my uh, my computer situation. Jumping back over to Instagram, Rebecca Rizzo, who is sort of like a local powerhouse here in my community and like business developer, asks... What microphones would you suggest to use as a beginner podcaster? Are there any microphones that you can use for an iPhone? Is there any tutorial on editing Final Cut Pro? Well, Rebecca, for editing, I mean, you can go to YouTube and just type in Final Cut Pro tutorials. I have a whole playlist on my channel that's called Be a Final Cut Pro Pro or something like something dumb like that. But it has all the tutorials I've made for Final Cut Pro. Um, Essentially, practice will help you figure it out. But YouTube has almost an unlimited number of awesome Final Cut Pro tutorials to get started. Um, There are microphones to use for an iPhone. The Rode kit that I mentioned earlier works with iPhone, and it works great. Um, Essentially, what you'll need, depending on which phone you have, pretty much every iPhone now has the lightning adapter. (laughs) But if you're using an Android phone, it could be different. Um, So you'll need something that will let you connect a mic to that lightning adapter. There are tons of things available. I would just go to a site like BNH Photo or Amazon, search for like iPhone microphone, and then um, order them by like highest customer review, and then see which one is most highly reviewed and, and go for that one. Tons of options there. If you're looking for something a little bigger than that, that's where getting in like we talked about earlier, USB microphones, something like a Blue Yeti or a Rode NT-USB Um, like a USB mic that plugs into your computer is a great way to go. And then if you want to get bigger and have multiple microphones and all this stuff, that's where something like the Rodecaster comes into play. But by the time you get a Rodecaster plus mics plus cables, you're probably edging up easily towards like $1,000, which probably not what a starting beginner budget would be. So I would stick with like a USB microphone or an iPhone microphone or or something like that. Uh, oh, here on Instagram, in Quickity Jacks, uh, in episode 2F09, when Itchy plays Scratchy Skeleton like a xylophone, he strikes the same rib in succession, yet he produces two clearly different tones. I mean, what are we to believe? This is a magic xylophone or something? <laughs> Boy, I really hope someone got fired for that blunder. Well, my answer to that uh, is that a wizard did it. <laughs> Canon Landwell says, how difficult is it to balance your teaching responsibilities and your YouTube channel? Well, as one of my all-star students, that would be a question that is uh, probably important to you to know. Uh, It's not super difficult. It can be kind of frustrating. Um, 
And I think that's a great question, not just as a teacher, but for anyone who has a day job and wants to have a different like creative endeavor on the side. Because the amount of time you have to put into a YouTube channel or a podcast or whatever is a lot more than like whatever you think the amount of time is like quadruple it. And that's probably closer to what it would actually be. So it can be difficult. I don't have any clear answers for me at this point, several years, three years into it, over three years into it. um, Having that system where I have a buffer of content is really important. So I don't have the pressure If something happens at school and you know, when we're actually able to go into school in like a normal time, but if there's an event or things are just really busy and I don't have time to make a video that week, it's nice to know that that doesn't mean there won't be a video that week or I, ha- I have to rush and make something that's terrible just to get something out that things will still post. I can focus on work and then, um, you know, make catch up on video stuff when I have time and vice versa is true too. Then knowing like, okay, it's summer vacation. Now is a good time to kind of dive into um, to my channel and stuff. But even though my YouTube channel is not my full-time job, taking it seriously and treating it like a job is really important because it's not just about making a video and uploading it. There's so much more. I could easily spend a whole day (laughs) sitting at the computer and working on channel stuff that has nothing to do with picking up a camera and recording and editing. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but just dealing with all of the behind the scenes stuff and that that can be a full job. So over the summer, I've been trying to have this balance of like taking breaks and resting, but also like, hey, it's Monday. I should like kind of put in a day of work or, you know, a near full, a three quarter day of work or something just on YouTube specifically because I have the time to do that. And uh, so it's not too difficult as long as you plan ahead and just know that There's always going to be something else to do and you're never going to reach the end, but also prioritizing like, you know, the YouTube channel is ultra fulfilling for me personally, but of course, so is my job and my day job is what pays the bills. And it is also the thing where it's like, I am directly affecting, you know, students lives in a way i think that that's an important responsibility so as much as i might want to sometimes focus on the channel instead remembering that like maybe this person needs an extra 15 minutes of my time or you know for me to spend some time replying to some messages or or whatever to to help them out with something is a more important use of the time than me working on my own thing it's it's tough but i think that's that's the best answer I can come up with right now. Jumping back to YouTube, Damian Brown says, would love to know your thoughts on the Rodecaster Pro versus other audio interfaces like the Scarlet for recording instruments and music. Is there a difference in the preamps quality based on my latest video? My latest video about that was plugging the Rodecaster into my iPad and trying to record a song that way. I was really happy with the results I got using the Rodecaster for instruments um, especially because it is multi-track and if you're trying to do something with drums where you have, you know, to mic a drum set, if you're micing a guitar amp, you plug plug in a microphone, point at the guitar amp, one mic, you're done. To do drums, you know, you can have almost as many mics as possible, but I can easily do all four tracks with four mics on the drums and probably even still want a few more. The Rodecaster worked really well for that. I think that might be an underrated ability of it. 
Um, something like the Scarlet works really well, but it has fewer inputs. So the Scarlet usually has one or two XLR inputs that go into your computer. To be totally honest, something I never talk about <laughs> on my channel is prior to the Rodecaster, the thing that I had, or I, I still have, is a Yamaha 10-channel mixer that I think costs about $150, maybe $200. And it has, it's 10 channels, but really it has like five XLR ports, something like that. And it also has a USB connector. So it can be an audio interface and it's a full-on mixer. And I think if you're doing music, that's kind of a real key if you really want to get into it is to have kind of a more traditional mixer. Let me grab, it's right here. <laughs> this is one of those things I could edit out, but I'm not going to. Yes, so here it's the Yamaha MG10XU. It has four XLR inputs, but then also several other channels for like quarter inch inputs or RCA inputs as well. But the big difference is it's got not only physical EQ switches, but it's got a lot of EQ. So you could do high mids and lows. You can add in some effects like reverb and chorus and whatnot. You can also pan and then add in some gain and some boost. If you're getting really into music, the ability to EQ things like that as you're directly recording are important. This mixer doesn't record on its own. So you do need to plug it in to your computer or plug in another external recorder to actually get a recording done. But these, I I should probably like make a video about this because it's kind of an underrated thing. I'm sure you can hear it banging around. I don't know why on a podcast that you can only hear why I feel like it's important to like actually be holding the thing that I'm talking about. It brings nothing to the finished product, but at least for me, I can see what I'm talking about. So long story short, if you're doing only music, something like that not only is going to be less expensive... Um, the Scarlet, I would just want something that has more inputs than two. So something like this Yamaha mixer has more. And I like that um, just because it gives you more EQ control. If you're leaning towards mostly voice or you don't feel for whatever reason that you need a ton of EQ, then the Rodecaster can be kind of a jack of all trades and works works really well. I'm totally happy with the Rodecaster. In my little world, if I'm doing more music stuff, I'm just going to do it on the Rodecaster. Uh, sticking with YouTube for a second. Uh, Ken Buffa says, can you please shoot a video on a step-by-step -step guide to my audio EQ processing in post? No one does that. I would love to if I had one. <laughs> and what I mean is this podcast, you might know for better or worse, I don't really edit it. Um, and that's, again, the beauty of the roadcaster is I can just play my little song and start recording. And, you know, I'm, I have my computer plugged in. So when I play the audio messages or I do the gear of the week song or whatever, it's just all on the fly and then I'm done and then I upload that and I've done a whole video about that workflow. Um, but I have started another podcast with Peter Lindgren who has a YouTube channel, a much bigger YouTube channel than I do. And he lives in Sweden and I live in California. And so our recording process is different than when it's just me and I do have to edit that together a little bit. So I'm still developing a workflow, but the long and short of it really is um, just keeping an eye on the meters so that our voices are essentially topping out around negative 12 on like the broadcast meters. And then I've been playing around a little bit with adding in like compression and limiter. So that way, if one of us is louder than the other, it kind of evens out a little bit. And I, I'm still learning that stuff too and what sounds good. So once once I get that 
nailed down. I would love to do a video on that because that's also interesting since we're on other sides of the planet, how we're doing a podcast together. And I think that idea is probably going to be helpful and interesting to a lot of other people too. So um, the the answer right now is I don't have a video on that. I just kind of explain my workflow. Once I get a better workflow going, I would definitely make a video about that. Uh, let's jump into another voice message. This one is from Jared Spink. Jared is the host of the Hive podcast, which is a really great show. Uh, he's had some incredible guests. I think he's about 10-ish episodes in, but literally from episode one, it seems like one of those things that has just been around forever because he's so good at it and it's so polished. Um, I was fortunate enough to be on one of the, I think I'm episode number seven, if I'm not mistaken. I'll put a link to the podcast in the show notes here and you can that you can see there's all kinds of great people. Heather was just recently a guest on it too, actually. So let's listen to Jared's question. Hey, Tom, what's up? It's uh, Jared over at the Hive Podcast. Really love the Enthusiasm Project YouTube channel, the podcast, and your new podcast that you're doing with Peter. Really great stuff. So here's my question. How can someone set themselves up to uh, be consistent or have sustainability when it comes to either a YouTube channel or a podcast? I'd love to hear your thoughts. All right. Thank you so much, Jared. I appreciate this. He was like one of the first people when I was doing the Q&A. He was like, how long do I have to submit a question? And I was like, I don't know, like a day. And he's like, I did an audio one. Thank you. Because uh, it's cool to hear other people's voices. But that is, this almost sounds planned. And I swear it wasn't because I just mentioned the podcast with Peter and I. And this is a great kind of segue into that. So I'll put a link to this in the show notes too. But the most recent episode of that podcast is Peter and I talking about the value of hard work, basically when it comes to creating content. And I've, I've talked about it on here too, but we kind of go into a discussion on like hustle culture and the negatives of that, but also the value in having a strong work ethic. And, you know, for me, building up a YouTube channel while also balancing a full-time career is tough. And then for Peter, if you don't know anything about his channel, we, we literally started our channels at like the exact same time. We have pretty much the same number of videos on our channel. And we had almost the exact same number of subscribers up until about a year ago, when suddenly he went from like 5,000 to he's currently at like 350,000. And I, I mean, I forget what, like 195,000 of that was from like August to December of last year. Like he just, he's suddenly like his channel took off and just saw exponential growth, but he's been able to sustain it and build a community behind it where I've seen so many people encounter that type of growth and then kind of drop the ball. And Peter has been able to, to keep it going. And part of that is because he has an insane work ethic prior to doing YouTube. He, he was a bodybuilder, like, to an insane degree. And if you're somebody who, who does that, you have to understand the idea of discipline and hard work. Of course, it's also gone too far. And he, he talks about in our episode how, you know, there's a good chunk of 2019 that he literally just doesn't remember because he was working so hard. And so we, we sort of talk about the balance, but long story long for Jared's answer to be consistent. Like I can give a lot of tips and things, but it has to be something you actually want. Kind of like I mentioned where a school can get all the equipment, get all the curriculum, but if they don't get the right teacher, 
none of it's actually going to work. You can you can say, okay, I'm going to record a video this day or do a podcast here. or I need to release something every Monday or whatever your schedule is. You can do all that stuff and that is very helpful. But, with, but it has to be your intrinsic motivation and understanding that like, I, I always say this stuff is fun because I enjoy it, but that might be deceiving because sometimes it's not fun, but the overall process is like satisfying and enjoyable, but there are definitely times where it's exhausting. And so I don't know if, if fun is like the right word or, or I, I don't know how to describe that, but knowing that sometimes you're not going to want to do it, knowing that sometimes it is going to be difficult and you're probably going to have to make sacrifices, but I have learned over the course of my life, you know, through all kinds of different trials and tribulations, the value of when you need to just putting your head down and doing what needs to be done. And that could be something like working really hard to support your family. That could be working to put yourself through school. That could be working on a YouTube channel or a podcast, but just knowing this is the thing I want to do. This is what I have to do to do that. I'm going to do that. The end. And there's just no room for discussion beyond that. And it sounds so simple. It's almost like when people want to lose weight and it's like, well, eat less and exercise more. It's like, but no, what's the secret? Eat less and exercise more. But it's it's not as easy as it sounds because actually putting that into practice over a long period of time becomes difficult. But that that is the struggle. And I have found that it's almost like a superpower when someone is able to do that. I I know that for me, especially like back in college, I, you know, I talked a couple weeks ago about what my crazy schedule was like working two or three jobs, then also going to school full time and, you know, never having a day off and that kind of stuff for years on end. While I was doing that, I also had friends who like weren't going to school or they were taking a part-time course load and not working, or they were just working like one little part-time job and not going to school or something. And, you know, they were living much more stress-free, fun lives than I was, but then as time went on and it was like, oh, uh, you know, you get Tom, you get time off in the summertime and you still like get a paycheck coming in. Like, that's not fair. And it's like, well, I, all those years when like you were out doing stuff and I said I couldn't because I had to work or I had to work on school, that wasn't super fun for me, but it was with a goal in mind, which was to start a career that I wanted that would give me the life that I wanted. And now I'm seeing the benefits of that and you're seeing the results of not having a strong work ethic. So it's literally like, you know, you can you can be as skilled as you want, but if you're not actually going to sit down in front of a camera and press record and edit it and upload it and do that, not five or six times, but do that 60, 70, 80, two, 300 times or more and just like, you know, for lack of a better term, just kind of grind it out then you're not going to be able to be successful. So the best thing is to just realize, like, what is your goal? Is this something you want to do because you actually, you really care and you want to put in the work? And, you know, I think the first 50 videos on my channel, by the time those were done, I think I had, if I'm not mistaken, 36 subscribers. And that was months and months of work, you know, investment in some gear, countless hours filming and editing, most videos were like barely hitting 20 or 30 views and like I said, 36 (laughs) subscribers. So it's not like there was immediate growth then either. So when you hit that point, you're making all this work and you're putting it out there and you're not yet getting the traction that you want. You're not yet building the audience that you want. 
Will you be okay with that? And will you know, I just need to keep putting my head down, putting in the time, the energy, and the work, and you know, committing to that to be successful. Obviously, within healthy reasons, like don't neglect important parts of your life, don't neglect your your own well being. But that does mean you're you're not going to be able to go hang out and you know socialize. Not that most of us can do that now, anyway. But you're not going to be able to have all the free time you had before and take on this. You have to be willing to sacrifice some of those things to do the other things that you want to do. And you know, if you want to do something that's extraordinary, it is going to take an extraordinary amount of effort, and you just have to be prepared to put that in if you really want it. That's a great question from Jared. And if you want to hear someone who's doing all of those things, go check out the Hive podcast because he is absolutely um, an awesome example of how to jump in and do it the right way. All right, we are coming up on pretty much we're just down to YouTube now. Uh, we're did I miss, I guess I missed all the did all the Twitter ones. So we are uh, we're coming down to the past few here. Uh, Electroplasm on YouTube says, I'd love to know what your top five tools, apps, or resources are for distance learning as we head towards August. Oof. Okay. Um, easy. Actually, super easy. <laughs> um, YouTube is huge. So that's number one because I, the ability, the thing that, okay, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. Distance learning, online classes are tough. And I would much rather be in the classroom with my students like normal where it can work as a team like normal. But that's not going to happen. So the tools to, it's not going to happen right now. So the tools to do what we need to do, YouTube is terrific. And one of the benefits is I can actually go more in depth via a YouTube video than I can in a class lecture. Because in a class lecture, I literally can't get through. I have good classroom management. I have great students. But when there's 40 or 50 kids in the room, I literally can't get through one or two sentences without having to like shh somebody or remind someone to pay attention or the phone rings or someone comes in to deliver a message or you know any number of interruptions, not to mention that the room is crowded and someone in the back might not be able to hear all the way or if I show something or try to display something, not everyone can see it perfectly or you know, and then everybody's, you know, distracted, someone's hungry and someone has to go to the bathroom and somebody's upset because their girlfriend broke up with them, all those things happening do make it very tough to get like my lesson about like the exposure triangle across clearly or something. And through YouTube, I can do that so much more clearly. If I'm explaining how something works, I can cut to a close-up of the little button or the switch. I can sit there and without being interrupted, explain what they need to know in depth and they'll be able to watch that when they're able to focus on it. And if they don't get it, they can replay it they can skip ahead like it puts a lot more control into the student's hand they have to actually put in the time to do that of course but the beauty of youtube is it is going to let well i mean it did in the springtime lets me go more in depth than i actually could in the classroom when it comes to lectures and like workshops and stuff so there's that google classroom is great if you're a teacher i'm sure you're familiar with google classroom i don't think i could survive right now without google classroom so just organizing things assignments post keeping in touch with students there um these aren't like exciting things but they are the things that i actually use zoom now that people are used to zoom i found that it works really well there's other options like google meet and skype and all that but zoom seems to be the most functional um so i I do a lot of zoom meetings as well um 
And then I, I know it's not five necessarily, but I'm going to go with four, Squarespace, which this podcast is not brought to you by Squarespace, but I have built websites with them for like 10 years. And one thing I'm doing, having been someone that took a lot of online classes through college and hated a lot of them because they were terrible, I'm sort of taking everything that went wrong and doing the opposite of it and building a like an online program for my program. So my students, whatever grade level they're in or their parents can just go to this one website. They can click on the class that they're in. All the info they need, all the links to the different things are just right there. And it's just super clear. Nobody can mess it up. Um, and it looks good and it works well and it's super fast and super simple. So you have all these resources, Zoom and Classroom and YouTube and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, trying to give all that info to your students and then have them organize that with like the other, in my case, the students have seven other classes. It's like, that's too much for anyone to keep track of. So just knowing that, okay, for Mr. Buck's class, I just go to this website. Everything else for me is right there. That is huge, is keeping things clean and organized. So I'm building my own uh, like online program class website with my web with my program website and I'm using Squarespace to do it because it's super easy. This is not sponsored by Squarespace. Uh Gil Gile Dormius, G-U-I-L, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, asks, what is your cable management like for YouTube and podcasts? Uh, the short answer is a mess. <laughs> but uh, I don't have a ton of permanent cable management because like right now I'm recording at my desk where I film most of my videos. So when I'm not doing the podcast, then I put everything away. So I don't really have great cable management since things aren't set up here at like my classroom where things are set up more permanently. I am really good about wrapping cables and, and keeping things out of the way. Sometimes I'll do like the Casey Neistat style thing of like, like pinning cables to the wall in patterns just to keep them out of the way. And it looks kind of cool. Um, but at home where I'm doing like my podcasts and my videos it's more about keeping things organized. So when I'm done recording right now, you know, the roadcaster's power cable and the microphone's cable and the um, like the auxiliary cable that's going into the computer, those all get wrapped up neatly using the over-under method and then put in very specific places where they're going to be safe and where I know I can just grab them the next time I need to do something. So my in the moment cable management looks awful, but everything is very organized and has a place. What is it? A place for everything and everything in its place. That's my, <laughs> that's my method. Uh, Muhammad Al Kozai says, I'm starting a podcast. Congratulations. But I'm also playing a lot of games and talking with friends over Discord. I'm considering buying the Rodecaster if it can be used as an audio face over Discord as well. Or will I hear my own voice all the time? You can totally use the Rodecaster. It works great for streaming. In terms of hearing yourself, that kind of, you'll have to kind of play around with your setup and how things are plugged in. But there's a lot of options, you know, for mix minus and um, soloing things and muting other things. It will work for what you need. You're just going to have to spend the time to use it. And I love that you asked that question because that is the most important thing. Even though many people may have the exact same tool, the way that we're using these tools, this could be anything besides the Roadcaster, are a little bit different. And so making sure that you take the time to actually learn how to use the thing that you have invested in is going to get you the best return on that investment. So spend the time that you need 
to understand what you're trying to do and how to do it with the tool that you have. And in this case, you'll definitely get what you need to do. I can't tell you exactly which button to press right now because I don't know your specific setup, but it is absolutely possible. Jacob Flores asks, what's your strategy when editing to use Premiere Pro? I use Final Cut Pro uh, because I love how just quick and easy it is. But Premiere is great. Resolve is great. All the software is great. (laughs) The biggest strategy is uh, media management, which I did a whole video about. You can check that out on my channel. And then uh, the way I usually put my stuff together is I tend, a typical video has a talking head portion and then B-roll clips. You know, so I'm talking about a camera. There's me at the desk talking and then all the clips of the camera or the sample footage or whatever. I start by putting in the talking head clips i even out the audio maybe do some like color adjustments and then i go through and just cut those up so the original footage might be you know 35 minutes long and then i cut it down to whatever the length of the video will be close to which is probably more to like 12 minutes because i make a lot of mistakes and say a lot of unnecessary things and then once i have that done then i go in and start laying on the b-roll clips on top adding in, you know, the little animated logos, doing the end screen for YouTube, adding in music, which is always the hardest thing to find and then to mix in effectively. So it's kind of building out from there. One strategy I like, since you take a talking head clip and you cut it down that much, it does have a lot of jump cuts. And even though jump cuts are fine on YouTube, especially like people are just used to them, I don't like to have too many of them. So if I notice that there's too many of them or or just when I can, I do like to cover up my jump cuts with a clip. So if there's a cut in the talking head where there's going to be a jump, if I can cover that with a B-roll clip of something, it it makes that that cut become invisible and it just makes everything flow a little more smoothly. So that's something I would recommend people do rather than just have like a thousand jump cuts together. Another thing that I've been noting that I've been doing lately which seems to be effective and i just never thought of it before but it's to match my cuts with my emphasis and my voice so for example if i'm talking about something and i want to cut to a clip of it i could just do that while i'm talking but sometimes when you cut to and from the clip it feels more natural than other times and i have found like let me think of an example if i if i say this camera has 8,000 autofocus points, which like no camera does. But if I hit something like that, like 8,000, like really emphatically, that point is a great time to cut to that clip. So as soon as like my voice is really emphatic and loud, that's when the cut happens and kind of the same thing back. If I'm making a hand gesture, I'm saying something where it's just there's more oomph behind it and that's when the cut is. It seems like things flow quite a bit more naturally so those are those are two strategies that i use a lot that really do help the overall polish of the video but of course you know there's anybody who edits over you know years and practice develops their own little strategies and tricks and things like that um Giel or guile also asks here what are some of the other ways the roadcaster pro can be used we've talked about live streaming live streaming is a great use of the roadcaster one of my favorite things to do and what Heather and I do is when we do our live stream every every Thursday on her channel, youtube.com slash heatherjustcreate, we, uh, we use the Rodecaster as the audio source for the live stream, but then I'm also recording on the Rodecaster. And then when we're done, I can take that audio file and upload it as our audio podcast. So I'm getting essentially two pieces of content, two pieces of high quality content from the same device 
at the same time, which is awesome. And then also, like we just talked about, using it for music, probably not the best, best suited tool for music because it lacks some of those finer EQ options, but totally usable. And I am really enjoying it for um, for music and stuff. Uh, Ryan Watson says, is it better or do you prefer to have all you need preloaded into the soundboard of the roadcaster and edit as you go or edit music and post later? I'm struggling with combinations of each, but love the road equipment. It is really all about your workflow. I'm, that's no secret now. Obviously, I do everything on the fly here, and I love that. I think that that's the magic of the roadcaster for me is having everything loaded into the soundboards. I can do my little song. I can put, make my jokes. I can do all that stuff and stop recording and upload it and be done with it. But um, like I mentioned, especially with the podcast that Peter and I do, it do, it totally doesn't work to do that because we're separate. So what we do is we use FaceTime to talk so we can see each other and hear each other. And then he he doesn't have a roadcaster yet, but he's got one on the way. He uses a USB mic and records in his computer. So he's FaceTiming me on his iPad. And then he's recording his voice onto his computer with the USB mic. I am recording my voice into the roadcaster. And then we're just having our conversation like normal. And then he sends me his voice file and I just sync them up in GarageBand. Um, yeah, I've been using GarageBand. I'm going to play around more with Audition, but GarageBand is just so simple. So we sync them up. But because we, we're doing it that way, the start and end of the show is usually pretty rough. So I, it's like part of just our off-air conversation. So I have to cut that out. And then we do have our intro and outro songs. So I cut those in and out a little bit. And that works fine the danger with that which isn't really necessarily a danger but we just did an episode where we were talking about an unreleased thing and we we get, we talked about some of the specifics and then right after we recorded the episode some of those specifics and those details changed and so there was a whole part of the episode that we had to cut out because it was inaccurate information and I, you know, I don't usually edit podcasts like this, but I had to go through and listen to the entire thing. And then anytime there was any mention of these incorrect things, I had to cut it out. And the problem with that, which isn't really the problem, but is that it became really easy to then notice, like, especially since we have separate voice tracks, oh, Peter's talking and I could hear myself like breathing or giggling. I'll just cut that out right here. Oh, look, here's an awkward pause. We'll just cut that out right here. And by the time I was done, even though, the actual stuff I had to cut out was just like a few clips here or there. The thing was like sliced up, you know, eight ways from Sunday because I had gotten that bug of like, well, I can fix this up and get this and change this level here, which honestly is going to lead to a better end result. But it also took like two and a half hours to edit the 50 minute podcast. So, you know, um, in terms of a great workflow, just doing everything on the fly is better. And for me, again, day job, YouTube channel, podcasts, like making things sustainable, making the workflow simple is what keeps them sustainable so that I can be consistent with them. But if you have the time and the ability, being able to go in and edit stuff out like that actually really does help and will ultimately lead to a, a probably a more polished final product. So it depends on what your needs are, I guess. Um, 
Deed Mills says, I just bought a Sony a7 III and wanted to know, hey, the dogs are barking, wanted to know what are the best lenses for this camera for portrait streets. I did answer this one there just because I got excited because the a7 III is a super cool camera. And he also says, following you from France. Hello in France. It blows my mind that we can all just talk to each other from all over the world. (laughs) I think that's one of the best things ever. And my initial response to this question was to say, I love the 24 1.4. doesn't matter if you're using like the Sony G Master 24 1.4 is great. Sigma makes a 24 1.4. It's amazing. I use the Sigma on my Canon. But so that is my answer for like favorite lens. Um, However, if you are doing portraits and weddings, a 50 millimeter prime, like a 1.4, 1.8, you can't go wrong with that. If you want to, if you don't mind having more than one lens or you have the budget for it, getting like an 85 millimeter, maybe even a 135 really fast lens, like a 2.0 or a 1.2 is going to give you some really, really incredible results, but don't feel the need to, to buy all that stuff at once. Definitely upgrade as your needs become apparent. And I'm a huge fan. I haven't used them on Sony cameras really, but Sigma lenses deliver awesome results at lower prices than like the Canon and Sony counterparts do. So congrats on your a7 III. It is just such an awesome camera. Uh, Z Alves did ask, how do you balance your teaching career with your YouTube project? And I we, we just talked about that, but I just wanted to acknowledge you for an- answering the question. And I'm not ignoring you, but we, did, we got that same question earlier. So we talked about that a second ago. Uh, Make Tech... PTY, Make Tech Pretty Limited, says, oh yeah, audio compression tips and please recommend a good lapel mic. Thanks, Ken. Um, I don't really have any audio compression tips yet because I'm still sort of learning what works, so I'm not the person to ask. But but if you want to know really more in-depth audio stuff, check out Curtis Judd on YouTube if you haven't already. He's such a pro, such an expert, and like a down-to-earth practical guy. And he dives deep into all of these things. And he does tie them a lot of times specifically to like, here's how compression works on the roadcaster or on this specific piece of gear. And it's really, really helpful. And he's a super nice guy too. Um, and then a good lapel mic. I would I would definitely recommend probably staying away. I would definitely probably, that doesn't make sense. But I would recommend staying away from, you know, you can go on Amazon, find the $12 mic. It might work okay. But if you're if you're able to and you can spend you know fifty to a hundred dollars on a good lapel mic, we have some Sony ones at work that they're actually XLR lapel mics. I forget their model number, but they're terrific. They're more like one hundred fifty to two hundred dollars each. I really like the Rode lapel mics that just have like the three and a half millimeter um, plugs on the end. Those work really well. Rode has several different versions. I just really trust Rode. <laughs> I know this sounds like an ad, but their stuff works really good. It strikes like the perfect balance between functionality and price. And then even more importantly, they have really awesome customer service. So if something does go wrong, they'll take care of it. We have, I mean, I think I have between shotgun mics and video mics and boom poles. and all We have like 50 different road things at work. And one of the video mic pros that I got like three or four years ago for my school program stopped working i forget what the problem was it just stopped working or no no it was one that had the built-in cable and the cable got messed up so the mic didn't work and i contacted road and i mean i wouldn't recommend doing this because obviously they were like helpful but i didn't have registration or receipt because it was purchased by the school district i had the serial number 
And they were like, oh, you know, just send it in. We'll fix it. I sent it in, got it back like barely over a week later working perfectly. And that was like three years after I bought it. So they really stand behind their products. They really listen to their customers. That's why I'd recommend like stick with a road mic, just road lapel mic and you'll find something great. And then learn how to place your lapel mic, learn how to run the cable correctly, learn how to position it correctly. I see a lot of people just clip them on random places and it's like facing down or it's facing the wrong direction or it's rubbing up against something and you don't want that to happen. So spend some time, watch some YouTube videos on how to place your lapel mic. Um, Fandomedia says, man, I discovered your channel and ended up getting a Rodecaster Pro today with the Rodecaster, Cloudlifter, and Boom Arm. So he's got this whole insanely good setup now. Thanks so much for your advice and your enthusiasm. I've been on YouTube a little over three years now and decided it was time to level up. Just wanted to thank you for helping out. Well, thank you so much for that. I did say on YouTube here, you know, it sounds like you've got an awesome setup. And he said, I can't wait to see what I can do with it. The Yeti wasn't cutting it anymore. It served me well, but after doing research... I'm addicted to leveling up the sound. Yeah, once you get into sound and lighting and all those finer details, it definitely does become an addiction. But if you're willing, like you are, to put in the time, energy, and effort to learn your stuff, you're going to get incredible results. We've got two questions left, and I, I did save these for the end specifically. So the second to last one is from Patrick Rambles, who has an awesome channel. Um, definitely check him out. He does a lot of iPad-related content, but he's just a terrific like his channel is so good so go check out patrick's channel but he asked what made you decide to start a channel if you've been listening for a while you might know this story but the shortest version is um essentially i wanted to create i had wanted to start a channel for years and i just put it off because i was nervous or i didn't know what i'd talk about and what i realized was through my job i was helping people create stuff but i wasn't making anything of my own and when I was making stuff, it was essentially client work that di- didn't have any of my personality in it. And because a lot of it was also educational kind of client related, it didn't really have any personality at all because it, it kind of can't when you're dealing with public education. And I was just feeling like I wanted to make something that I could inject my own personality and perspective into. And most importantly, that I could be completely in charge of. And I wanted to challenge myself, especially at that time, to put myself out there in a way that I never had before and see what happened, see if it would be you know, this terrible thing and everything went awful or if people would actually respond to it in a positive way. And even when your audience is small or nearly non-existent, it really is crazy when you find, you know, just those couple people who will leave a comment that supports you in a really nice way or, you know, you notice somebody leaves leaves a comment on several of your videos and it's like, wow, like somebody actually is, is paying attention. And Heather was obviously a huge part in convincing me that not only did I have a worthwhile perspective on things and was it was worth creating something to share my thoughts, but also that it was okay. And that was a huge thing was prior to that in in many years, I just hadn't been surrounded. I just hadn't been in the best environment where I felt comfortable taking on a creative endeavor like that. And so to have somebody who I admired and looked up to so much when it comes to creating, tell me that you should totally do this and it's totally okay to want to. It's not stupid. It's not ridiculous. It's not outlandish. You should go for it. It's great. 
that meant the world to me was to be able to just get started. So wanting to create something of my own and put myself out there and learning that it's okay was was a huge part of it. And I was on top of that, I was very tired of being like the digital media teacher who was not making his own digital media. I just felt a little bit hypocritical. So that was that was kind of the the shortest version. I can do a whole episode and go into more detail. That's the shortest version of why I started that channel. But that leads us into our last question from Luke1234, who said, where do you see the channel going in the next 12 months? Well, obviously to a million subscribers and full-time job. No, (laughs) Um, I don't know exactly where, it's not going to like take any crazy turns. I don't think it has been growing at a pretty consistent rate. And I would love for that to continue, if not increase. But I can also confidently say that I'm very happy with where the channel is. So I'm not, as much as I do like watch the numbers and pay attention to those, probably more than I should. I'm not as obsessed with like, I remember like the the insane, I got to get to 100. Like I really want to get to 100 or eventually then that moved up to like 1,000 and you know, you want to hit these milestones. I still want to hit milestones, but I'm also like, I'm I'm just happy <laughs> with where the channel is. And where I would like it to go in the next 12 months is I would like to work on getting, I don't know how to, like getting more well known for like a specific thing about my channel. And I I don't know how to describe it, but I think of someone like Gerald Undone. So there's lots of people who do tech reviews. And when you think of Gerald, yes, he's funny. Yes, his stuff is high quality. But the thing that's going to stick out the most is how thorough he is. So he's just super objective and super thorough. Like you're going to learn about every spec. You're going to learn about every quirk, every single thing. That's like what he is known for. If you think of somebody like Potato Jet, He's known, like he's technically super skilled and proficient, but he's also super fun. And so you know he's not just going to like test something out, but he's going to put this quirky spin on it that makes it different than what anyone else is doing. And those are just a couple examples off the top of my head, but I would love to be known for, you know, it's kind of happening with like all the dad jokes and puns and things that just sort of naturally happen. Uh, And that would be fine if I'm just like, he does uh, video production tutorials and things, but there's a lot of like dumb puns and dad jokes. Cool. But just, I guess the reason that I would want to to be known for something specific would be, it would really make me feel like I'm definitely providing help and value towards people. But even on top of that, more importantly, maybe as a part of that over the next 12 months, my main thing that I'm focusing on is wanting to build a community wanting to you know be sure to prioritize like interacting with the people who are taking the time to watch my stuff and listen and comment and send messages and making sure i understand what they're trying to do and what their questions are what their needs are what their struggles are and who they are and like you know i a lot of people who have left questions now like i i know you guys a little bit or we talk on social media or or whatever it might be and that's like, I love knowing those things when you ask a question and I have an idea of where you're coming from and I can kind of like, it just gives me a better context. It's almost just like teaching, like you learn about your students and, and things like that, except YouTube 
it's much more like, you know, you can, it's like everybody's a peer, like you're creating this thing and you do it that way. Cool. I create this thing and I do it this way. So just finding a way to build that positive community where there's people who are excited, not just for the videos. They don't just like, but there's, they don't just like them, but there's this like other element that's almost intangible around it that, that really I think is tied to community and being part of something that's supportive and fun and positive and really trying to cultivate that. That is a huge priority for me um, right now and definitely would continue on into the next 12 months. <gasps> Ooh, that was our uh, first Q&A. We did it almost an hour. We, <laughs> well, you were here listening, so definitely a team effort. Um, but that's an almost an hour and a half of questions. That is unreal. So thank you so much to everybody who sent in questions. Thank you for those who listened to this. I hope you got something great out of it. Feel free, of course, you know, send in questions even when I'm not doing Q&A time. If you want to leave a voice message, you can always go to anchor.fm slash enthusiasm. Normally, I would do a gear of the week thing. I mean, I can play my little, uh, my uh, royalty-free chill beats right here. I've been trying to figure out what I want to do for gear of the week so i didn't have a specific segment but here's what i will say i'm not going to even put a link to this in the description of the show my gear this week is uh colored xlr cables so uh my microphone cable was starting to not work it was getting real crackly and gross and so i just went on amazon my favorite color is blue so i just typed in blue xlr cable and i found like here's a blue one that's cool and then i thought oh Heather's favorite color is purple. So I typed in purple XLR cable. It was a purple one. And then I got like a red one and, and a black one, of course. And it <laughs> it's like the dumbest thing because it doesn't affect sound quality at all. But it's so like it looks good. And that sounds silly. But when we do like our live stream and literally like my microphone has a blue cable and Heather's microphone has a purple cable, it looks neat. And like the number of people who have commented on it is kind of absurd so I don't have a specific brand recommendation or anything like XLR cables are all great. Get the length you need, but colored cables, would, even if you're doing like anytime you're working with cables, not only get the one you need, get a color. Everybody gets things that are just black, 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 black. And it's kind of cool to have these pops of color in your life a little bit. It might not be as sleek as, you know, everything just being stealth mode, but you know, I don't know. I'm a big fan of pops of colored. So my gear of the week this week are uh, colored XLR cables. Now in the show notes, I'm going to put links to some of the stuff we talked about today. I'm going to put um, a link to the Hive podcast with Jared. And there's an episode with me on there if you want to check it out, but I'm just going to do the podcast as a whole so you can see everybody he's had and maybe find some people um, that you'd be really excited to listen to. I'm also going to put a link to the podcast I have with Peter Lindgren. So that way you can check that out. It's it's just called A Podcast with Peter and Tom. And um, it's on all the podcast platforms as well. So you can take a listen to that if you want. It's really fun. We've got three episodes that are published so far. And then I'll actually put a link too to the podcast that Heather and I do, The Couples Table, which is also a live stream every Thursday. Somehow podcasting became like a huge chunk of scheduling time. It's like three podcasts a week now. But it's so much fun and with the right tools, it makes it super easy. So again, thank you so much. Um, of course, I'm at So Darn Tom on all the things or the Enthusiasm Project on YouTube. I appreciate your time. 
Hope to hear from you soon, and I will see you in the next episode. 